Hi, 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 hi. I'm back. It's been away for a couple of weeks in Maui doing that retreat with Ram Das and Krishna Das and a host of wonderful teachers. And I grabbed one of them while I was there. And he uh, t- to get him on the show is a, is a real blessing. One of the great musicians I, I've worked with much in the past. We've known each other a long time. Benji Wertheimer. Benji, so glad you finally made it here to Mind Rolling. Well, so am I. Thanks so much for having me. And especially right after this magical time we shared in Maui, it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, except for the sick people. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Bit of the flu going around there. Thank God we made it through, though. Yeah. So just a little historical thing. Um, and there's a few things, of course, I, I really want to talk about. Uh, but um, when Krishna Das and I had the record co- World Beat Record Company, Triloka, which was uh, from 1990 to 2006, it was quite a run, actually. Um, we uh, did a lot of different records, of course, around different traditions in the world, which was a real thrill. And it's how they all kind of came together. We would do things where we'd bring different elements together from different traditions. So, uh, But we had one constant <laughs> throughout a lot of these records, and that was Benji. And uh, <laughs> Benji is unique. He plays an instrument called the S-Raj. And he also plays tablas, and he also sings, and we're going to get him to do a little of that uh, exceptional throat singing uh, at some point <laughs> in the show here. Uh, okay. But, you know, what I really want to do, I think it would be smart for us, Benji, before we talk about anything, uh, because I want to talk about the music. I want to talk about the instrument you use. I want to mm-hmm. talk about the antecedents of it all and and your training and your connection to it. And I think we need to play something so that everyone gets a little bit of an idea of what we're talking about, right? Sure, so, yeah. So uh, Benji uh, uh, Triloka did a record um, many years ago uh, around, uh, it was music for yoga, basically. So it had some chanting, but then uh, we had a second CD that had um, really... At wonderful uh, music that w- created an atmosphere from which you could do meditation, yoga, you could do practice. And I, I can't more highly, more highly recommend this, uh, this particular uh, uh, song uh, that Benji did. And, and we'll, we'll, you'll talk about it in a bit, but it's called Meditation in the, in the Night. And by the way, everybody, you'll be able to get Benji's records, of course, we do appreciate if you go up on Amazon or go to uh, BeHereNowNetwork.com and uh, just grab that Amazon link that you can then put in your bookmark so that whenever you go to Amazon, it's got a code and we will get a small percentage of each thing that you buy on Amazon. So it, it's a way of supporting the network and it's uh, and it doesn't uh, come out of your pockets. That's that's our our biggest recommendation for people to help us and so you'll be able to get all of benji's records up on amazon and uh we will put uh, a list of them and links to make it easy 
Okay. So the, what what did this album, Meditation in, in the Night, just tell us what the album titled it came from. Yeah, the entire album is called Soul of the Esraj. Uh, mm. The Esraj is an instrument that comes from northeastern India. It's especially associated with the Bengalis, a uh, favorite instrument uh, of that time. It's a it's an instrument that's very unusual in Western terms in that it has 19 strings, mm. uh, only four of which are actually played directly with my bow. And then the other 15 strings are what are called sympathetic so that they resonate every time I play the note that they're tuned to. So it has sort of a built-in reverberant echoing quality that is very, very sweet. Mm. And uh, this instrument found me about two years deep into my study of North Indian classical music. Uh, my, my guru in raga, in the melodic forms, was Ali Akbar Khan, this great master of music. And I tried to play his instrument for about six months, the sarod. And, you know, sometimes in life you get these messages that maybe you're not going down the right path. And although I loved the instrument, we weren't connecting. Hmm. Uh, well, so I, want, it, it, I was very happy that the Esraj pretty much literally found me yeah, at uh, that point in my training. Yeah, so. well, the guru finds you. Well, listen, yeah, let me, <laughs> I want to talk about all that, but I, I want people to, to hear this instrument uh, because, sure. uh, and, and you've been very light in your <laughs> talking about the what that instrument does, and we'll talk about that uh, in a minute. So here is Meditation in the Night, Benji Wertheimer and... Uh, enjoy this we can't play the whole cut it's, it's way too long for a podcast uh so we will uh, fade it out after a few minutes everybody
Okay, we're back, and uh, I think that now everyone realizes the depth to which this instrument can bring one's whole being, can bring your mind to one point. When you, I mean, it's a total meditation. For me, it is. And I think other music lovers would say the same, that if you listen to this and you focus the way you would focus on your breath in a meditation and you focus just completely being enveloped by the sound and bringing it inside yourself, that you, it, it acts exactly in the same way and can carry you uh, to, uh, to other dimensions, that's for sure. Uh, and, and the other part of it that I love, this, it just, as soon as I hear it, Benji, I'm like in India. Okay. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. it just brings that right, right to me. And, uh, so you were saying before that, uh, this instrument found you and, 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 you know, and of course, for those of you, Benji was a student who don't know, uh, of Ali Akbar Khan, who Yehudi Menuhin, the greatest classical violinist of our age, said, "The greatest uh, musician in the, in the world now." You know, this is not that long ago, twenty, thirty years ago. He said this is Ali Akbar Khan, whose father, Aluddin Alauddin Khan, was the basically a progenitor of modern North Indian classical music. You'll correct me when if I'm wrong here, Benj, because you you know way more than I. Uh, and uh, and in fact, his lineage goes back to the 16th century uh, of the master Tansen. And uh, I actually was in a fortress in Gwalior in India. Oh. Where that they had a palace, and Tansen was in that palace, and and that was like you know a big emanation of that, and they played, uh, and and they were playing his uh, compositions and so on. I think Ali Akbar Khan. So Ben, you you go back into that tradition, and yes. uh, meanwhile, Esraj finds you, not vice versa. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, well, as you mentioned, Ali Akbar Khan's lineage uh, does go all the way back to Tansen. And maybe I'll start there for a moment, because for me, that period of time uh, in the court of Akbar the Great was an unbelievable renaissance of all kinds of things in Indian culture. It was one of the very few times where the Muslim culture and the Hindu culture actually were working with each other to bring out the jewels of each of those cultures. And their progeny, if you will, of that was in part the classical music that took shape in the 1600s under Tansen, where it brought in these elements of Persian and Arabic music with this very ancient music of India in what became the Hindustani North Indian style. And Ali Akbar Khan traces his lineage straight back to Tansen. And in fact, his father, you mentioned, Alauddin Khan, was considered by many Bengalis to be the greatest musical saint since the time of Tansen. Hmm. What he brought to Indian classical music is immeasurable. He lived to be 110 years old. He played a huge range of Indian instruments and Western orchestral instruments, <laughs> an absolutely brilliant musical genius. And of course, he was also Ravi Shankar's guru. So somehow I was lucky enough to find myself as this clueless Western kid who was fascinated with India to come into the sphere of these great master musicians. How old were you? <laughs> the first time I ever heard one of the great masters play, I was 15 years old. 
And that was actually with the great tabla player, Zakir Hussain. And he was at Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado, where I grew up with the great bamboo flute master, G.S. Sachdev. Hmm. And that was my first Indian classical concert. And when I saw Zakirji playing the tabla, it made very clear what I was here for. I can't think of any other way to put it. It was this kind of epiphany. I'd been very involved in music my whole life and quite a bit with uh, especially Afro-Cuban percussion. But when I heard the musicality of the tabla, it was from a completely different dimension than I had ever experienced. And hearing the musicality of Sachdev and that melodic form just went straight to my heart like nothing ever had. I found out that they were teaching at the Ali Akbar College of Music in Marin County. And so I set my intention as soon as I got out of high school, that's where I'm going. And fortunately, I was able to do that and began my study of tabla and Indian classical vocal at that time. And wanting to play an instrument, I played the sarod, which of course is the instrument that Ali Akbar Khan played so exquisitely. Um, but for some reason, I don't think it was my instrument. And I was wandering around one day in Berkeley uh, on Telegraph Avenue. This would have been 1979. The kind of place that in those days, maybe you only would have seen in Berkeley. It was kind of part import shop, herb shop, psychedelic head shop. And in this funky painted plywood black case, was this instrument, the S-Raj, and a little index card that said, S-Raj, $175. I look at it, what the heck is an S-Raj? Hmm. Oh, I don't know. Well, I played violin as a child, so I pulled it out and made some really awful squawking noises on it. But I immediately fell in love with the instrument, and I had this sense of what I could probably only describe as destiny, really. I am supposed to have this instrument. And so I bought it on the spot, and in those days... Uh, along with a number of indigent uh, classical music students that lived there. We were in shared housing situations, $75 a month rent, living upstairs from a health food co-op. So $175 was a pretty major commitment at that point. But I got the instrument and I brought it to Kansab, the, what we called Ali Akbar Khan. And Kansab was thrilled to have a Western student of the instrument. I was the only SRI student at the college. And that was true in part because the history of the Esraj is very closely tied to Bengali culture. And um, the great poet Tagore was a huge fan of the Esraj. And there were some song, song cycles that he created that he said should not be performed unless an Esraj player could be found as mm. part of the accompaniment. Um, Paramahansa Yogananda played the Esraj. Really? And chances were, if you were a Brahmin Bengali woman around the turn of the 20th century, you played the Esraj. It was really the instrument of choice. But if you fast forward to the time when India gained its independence from the British in 1947, the hub of that art of playing the Esraj really went along what became the borderline between India and then East Pakistan, later Bangladesh. And it was a horrific period in their history, very bloody period, very difficult. And the art of playing the Esraj almost disappeared. And so I felt so fortunate that this instrument found me. I had found this guru, and the pathway was cleared for me to explore what this instrument could express. And that pathway continues to this day. It's not long before I'm going to be dealing with, you know, 40 years that I've had this instrument, 38 years ago. Mm. Wow. Um, but, he, but he taught 
So he taught you how to play this instrument, correct? Yes, he did. Did he play this instrument? He actually did. What's interesting is that everybody knew him as a sarod player, but his father played the esraj. He played he played the esraj, the sarangi, the sitar, the sarod, uh, harmonium, dholak, tabla. Oh. Uh, okay. He played various horns, including trumpet, trombone, uh, violin. I mean, it's unbelievable. Mm. And part of what he passed on to Al Akbar Khan was. Uh, you know, the, the essentials of playing each one of these. And I was very glad that I had that guidance. And one of the things that Ali Akbar Khan was so masterful at was whatever instrument you played, because there are students who studied guitar and violin and clarinet, was taking the essence of this melodic form, the sacred form of raga, and translating it to a lot of different instruments. He also taught me that one of the things that you really want to do more than anything else with the esraj is to play in a style, they call it gayaki in the tradition, which means in the manner of singing. So you try to connect mm. between the notes, you glide between the notes, and the more vocal a quality that you can bring into it, the sweeter it sounds. Mm. So he focused a lot on that as well, and I always hope that I honor that. Every time I sit down to play the instrument, that's part of what I bear in mind were those kinds of instructions that he would give me. Mm. Well, he was called the Emperor of Melody, right? That was... <sighs> And Absolutely. And I'll tell you, you know this, but just to tell everybody listening, at Triloka, we made three records with Khan Saab, Ali Akbar Khan. And the first one we made with Jai Utal producing, uh, he, there was no preparation. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the studio, he'd come up with a, a, a melodic structure off of a raga, right? Yeah, and he'd teach it to everybody there and then, and then bang, play it. And I mean, my you know, my whole life has been music has been central, and I, I'm just going to mention something to you in a minute about how that happened for me in terms of of uh, realizing there was a path uh, out of my misery when I was a teenager, but uh. music was certainly that, and. Uh, uh, this pr- these particular sessions that I did with him and being around, I mean, a, a, a virtual, a genius. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, yeah. That, that you knew that you were in pre- that kind of a presence. I The whole record company, the whole, you know, nine yards of 16 years, 17 years of it, whatever it was, uh, that those sessions, as they say <laughs> in Hebrew, dayenu. That would have been sufficient. (laughs) You know know what I mean? I mean, it was such a a powerful, transformative experience uh, on all levels, not to mention him sitting around telling us these stories forever, of course, with a bottle of scotch uh, was a little bit of the grease, (laughs) but... uh, Yes, yes. Yeah, so... uh, yeah, Benjamin and I share a, a great love for him, and uh, uh, certainly I recommend to everybody, by the way, go look for Ali Akbar Khan records. There's a ton of them. Uh, the one I'm referring to right now is called Journey, uh, mm, and it yes. was a crossover, and it's the only crossover music he ever did was with us because Jai asked him to do it, and Jai was a long, long... Jai Utah, who... By the way, you can get his new record out there now that I'm thinking about it. 
uh, and Jai, yeah. Jai convinced him to do it. And, and he, as a longtime uh, disciple, he did do that. So uh, check him out as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump now to... Um, so this happened to you, and you got out of high school, 18 years old. You, you popped over to California and became a student there. You did not mm-hmm. go to college? You ended... Well, that was that uh, it was that was your college. The first chapter. Uh, there were later times. You know, I come from a very academic family, and uh, there was a lot of pressure to follow in my father's footsteps. Um, you know, my father is a Harvard PhD in psychology and a professor at the University of Colorado. My mother also a Harvard PhD and later an epidemiologist. So, <laughs> in one sense, people ask me, you know, what religion did I grow up on? And I have to answer honestly, it was science. Yeah. Right. There's that worldview of science yeah. that was right at the heart of everything. And Did they meet Richard Alpert, by the way, back then? As a matter of fact, my father was Richard Alpert's master's thesis advisor at Wesleyan. No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this cool. is one of those things that feels so miraculous about my connection with Maraji and all that is before I was born, long before I was born, there was this connection made with Richard Alpert. And... I remember first hearing about Ramdas's work again back when I was in high school, and, and I was fascinated by. You know, I, was, I got a copy of Be Here Now, and I started talking to my mother about it. She says, "Oh yes, we know Richard Alpert. <laughs> <laughs> Rich, yeah. Remember that he would came that he came over to the house sometimes. Yeah. Um, he had a copy of I think a draft of his thesis, uh, and my sister at the time was running around in diapers and." He was talking about freeing things up so that children didn't feel that they were too constrained in the world. And I remember my mother noted, though, that when my sister started going for the papers, that, of course, Richard Alpert was the first one to try to make sure the papers didn't get too far out of her. <laughs> But that was the memory that she recalled. And uh, when I was able to reconnect with Ramdas many, many years later, uh, he remembered my father. It was a very sweet thing. Uh. It's uh, yeah. really lovely. All right, so off you go from high school to Ali Akbar School mm-hmm. uh, College. Um, but so the music is, I mean, this music to me, you can't have a relationship without it, without it doing something consciousness-wise. What was happen- happening to you consciousness-wise? I mean, you're just saying now that you grew up in a very scientific-oriented family, Yes. Um, but was there a moment when you realized there was a possibility of uh, there being something else existing other than your thinking mind and ego and action? Yes. And in fact, I would say there were many such moments. And so many of them occurred at Ali Akbar Khan's feet. I have to say that. Mm, really? One of the times I will never forget, it was a concert at the old church on Van Ness Avenue in San Francisco. Uh, this would have been in the summer of 1977. I was really lucky. I got to be right in the front. You know, they actually let us sit up on the steps right next to the stage. So I was sitting as far away from him, you know, maybe three, four feet away, just right there. And he was playing this extraordinary raga uh, known as Darbari Khandra. It is such an evocative raga. And I remember the point where he played the most important note of that raga, the second note in the scale. And I realized hearing him play that one note, you were talking about this is enough. I could die and feel 
completed in the music I'd heard from one note. Mm-hmm. The way that he played it, it was so deeply imbued with everything he poured into his music over decades. It had so much heart, so much feeling. Because so often you find that people are very taken with pyrotechnics, for example, in music. And when it serves the music, it's fantastic. You know, if that's the energy you're going for, it's wonderful. But to me, in one sense, that was the first lesson is that if somebody can put that much into one note, it's absolutely unbelievable. So that was a beginning for me. And I have to be honest, coming from my scientific background, um, coupled with that was a little bit of a connection to the Quakers. Uh, my father, who escaped the Nazis at six years old. Oh, really? I didn't know Wound that. up being very drawn to the Quakers, I think for two really important reasons. Number one was the pacifism that's so central to their philosophy. And the other was this recognition, now this also moves very much into Ramdas territory, of the most sincere form of worship in the world being service. What can I do to help others? What can we do to make a difference? Mm. And I had this sense of God, but it was very unformed in my own mind. And I would see in the course of these songs that we were presented as part of the classes or the text of these songs that might be to Saraswati or to Shiva or to Krishna. And I had to admit I was baffled. The whole Hindu pantheon was something that I couldn't really make sense of. It's like, isn't it all one thing? And at that time, at the Ali Akbar College, there was this brilliant brilliant Bengali scholar who was my first tabla teacher because Zakir had left the faculty right when I got there. It was kind of a, a frustration for me, but his name was Gyan Prakash Ghosh. And he also was one of the greatest Bengali scholars of bhajan, this beautiful uh, poetry set to music that's very deeply devotional in nature. And I finally came up to him one day. I said, Gyanda, I just don't understand. I mean, this music is so beautiful but I hear about all these gods and goddesses. And I mean, isn't it all just one thing? And you know that, that typically Indian gesture where it's not really nodding your head and not shaking your head. He looked at me with the sweetest kind of indulgent look. And he said basically this. He said, imagine, if you will, at the center of absolutely everything, there's this jewel, indescribably beautiful, but because of our limitations in this life, in this incarnation, the only way we can view that jewel is as between slats of a fence. Hmm. Each and every one of those perspectives is a name. And it just blew me away. It's like, oh, <laughs> okay. We are talking about the same thing. And each one of us in our lives, we have these different proclivities that move us toward you know, the Ishta Devata, that form of the divine with which you most resonate. And I certainly felt that was happening with Saraswati, the goddess of music, and, you know, the voice, philosophy, the arts in general, but especially music. And Ali Akbar Khan was somebody who had as Muslim a name as you will ever find, Ali Akbar Khan, but you would be very hard-pressed to find a more dedicated devotee of Saraswati. All over his house, he had a temple room there to her. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And finally, I think it came to its deepest fruition, to something that serves me to this day. And I literally think about it just about every time I sit down to play or sing. 
Uh, you mentioned times where we would have these truth-telling sessions with Kansab, fueled by usually very good scotch. <laughs> and he would uh, make dinner. I mean, one of the things that happened was in the 1970s, some of his students came to India with him for the first time. And let's face it, we were all a bunch of fun-loving hippies who were really taken by this music, and we could appreciate the greatness. But it was a very loose kind of relationship, and we were completely unaware of the amount of respect that is usually afforded to the guru. One year, a bunch of students went to India, and they saw everybody touching his feet and treating him with so much deference. And that started to become the norm at the college. And quite honestly, I don't know that he liked it. I think he much preferred just hanging out. And fortunately, I was such a clueless kid that I would just come over and hang out and drink scotch with him and eat his food. <laughs> and he would talk about the old days. And it was a very sweet kind of connection. But I'll never forget one day when I came over for dinner. And, uh, you know, he, he could be so funny and sometimes, uh, I mean, unbelievably irreverent, a great sense of humor around all that. But he seemed kind of quiet and wistful almost. And... He asked me, have I ever shown you my temple room to Saraswati? And I, I said, no, no, I haven't seen it, Kansab. I said, would you like to go? Now, this to me becomes almost the definition of a no-brainer. The greatest musician in the world is asking me if I want to see his temple room to the goddess of music. Oh, my gosh. He says, yes, let's go. And like I said, I had a healthy dose of skepticism about all this, my scientific upbringing, my confusion about the music and its connection to all things sacred. And I remember walking down the hallway into this part of the house I hadn't been. It was an unpretentious kind of tract home in Marin County. Yeah. And I looked and he opened the door to the room. And it was as if these gale force winds of pure creative energy came pouring out of the room. It was mind blowing. And then when I stepped into the room with him, it was as if every ounce of his intention over decades and decades of practicing 12 to 16 hours a day went straight to my heart in a fraction of a second. And that to me made absolutely clear how powerful and sacred this entire practice of what I later came to know as Nada Yoga, this yoga of sacred vibration and sound, was that he had practiced with such devotion and that he shared the fruits with us, you know, decades of really every single day, 12 to 16 hours a day of practice. And then for 42 years, he shared those fruits with us. It's one of the greatest gifts you can imagine. Yeah, he told me his father used to make him when he was a child practice no sleep. He'd be in a hammock. And he'd, he'd have the instrument and he'd maybe nod out, he said, but he, that's how, I mean, that's what we're talking about, folks. I don't think we in the West have any idea of what these people put into, the, I mean, these masters yeah. have put into, and what, what has <laughs> happened in, in ages past, and, and a lot of that's gone. Thank God you're still doing it here. Are you, you know, Ben? Yeah. Well, one of the things I remember he told me, one of the stories that I'll never forget is that his father also taught him to tie his hair to the ceiling while he was practicing. Oh, so that if he started to fall asleep, it would wake him up and he would keep playing. He joked with me that that was how he became bald. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my. When I also had the privilege, you know, of hanging out in his house and, and going into his uh, temple room, 
and being blown away by the Hindu pantheon, basically, you know, the Hindu representation. He's a Muslim. What, I mean, talk about where we're at right now in this world yeah. of polarization um, and what this man represented and what his lineage represented. I mean, you were talking about, um, you know, back to the court of you know, Akbar and, uh, and Tanzan and the way they brought together these different elements from Hindu and Muslim tradition. And, I mean, of course, we must mention they went in and completely eviscerated India, you know, and, uh, there's no, and oh, then yeah. India did the same back in some other fashion at some other time. Yeah, you know, the, so uh, this is not new. What has been, what is going on now, of course, is uh, as everyone knows, this is not new. Um, we're in, a, I think, in a situation which is why we do a lot of stuff here on mind rolling to just uh, reveal as much as possible. What are the what are the best examples that we can follow to not fall into this trap ourselves, uh, which we do the judgment and the polarization and so on. And Ali Akbar Khan is certainly a tremendous model. Uh, we use, of course, Martin Luther King as our favorite model mm. of, mm-hmm. uh, of uh, the kind of, uh, it can only happen through love. It's not going to happen through violence. And uh, anyhow, you know, just, it's just, you're just reminding me of, of the beauty of, of what he, he brought to us. Both musically and then what was it? What was in his soul? That uh, there's there's a one of the greatest um, siddhas, not saints. That which is beyond a, a, a saint, where there's abs- absolutely you know somebody that's living in complete uh, non-duality and still has a body and 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 the, yeah. has that thread. Um, Neem Karoli Baba was known as such. But the one who exemplified what we're talking about, that nobody knew even who he, where he came from, Shirdi Sai Baba, right? Mm, uh-huh. And everybody out there, take a look up and, and find Shirdi Sai Baba. There was a Sai Baba that died not more than 10 years ago, within the last 10 years, I think, uh, that is a different uh, being, uh, and he's not who I'm talking about, uh, Shirdi Sai Baba. Uh, we'll put that, uh, the folks that put together our show notes, we'll make sure that uh, you, you get to see that because he, nobody knew if he was a Muslim or a Hindu. He wow. he would actually, he would force some of his Hindu devotees to go into a mosque to pray and vice versa. His mother, And he was wow. constantly undercutting the division the polarization. He is a fantastic uh, model. Uh, he's beyond a model. I mean, he this this is a being that's as present now uh, as he ever was in a body. Uh, so yeah, I think we need these models. And I couldn't agree more. And I know that Kansab was a great believer in the power of music to unite people that we could find ways of appreciating people who came from very different backgrounds or even systems of religious belief just by seeing what happens when they sat down to play for God. And there was never any question in Kansab's mind. He was playing for something much larger than his physical self every time. He would even touch his instrument. 
And I see that beautifully being reflected now in the current generation. You know, his son Alam really got that fire and that passion to express the divine through music. Mm. And uh, it's extremely inspiring to me. And I feel that that's one of our sources of hope. I mean, many of us these days, when we look at the political landscape, and you've been talking about the polarization, the potential for violence, the lack of understanding between people of different modes of religious thought or culture, that when we focus on pouring our love to God out there in the world and serving one another, and what could be sweeter than serving each other beautiful, beautiful music? It's a sacred trust, and I have to admit, many times I find myself very upset about what I see going on in the world, and I keep coming back to what is it that I can do that is truly most efficacious? How do I respond to violence? How do I respond to hatred? How do I respond to division? And the answer always comes up. It feels like it's in Kansab's voice. Make more beauty. Pour yourself more powerfully into the music. Spread the love that way. Work for what you want to see and what you want to create not against those things that you feel you need to oppose. Let me ask, are you, uh, are you, uh, and through this gigantic practice that you've been involved with for a long, long time, but there is still, and, you know, we both know what we're talking about in terms of the reactivity that we can get into uh, by mm-hmm. the virtue of the day-to-day events that are going on. Uh, and that reactivity really preempts a lot of conscious um, action, interaction and outer action. That reactivity is, is, is something that, again, we do talk a lot about, and I, w- I work with different teachers to bring out whatever mm-hmm. practices there are that they can suggest to, to really uh, cut that off at the pass, so to speak. And yes. and of course, mindfulness is a byword today. But there obviously is, there's extraordinarily useful practices through mindfulness that allow us to cut to cut our reactivity down. Are you using any of these methodol? What methodologies are you using? Because I, I do know you well enough to know that you will be you know you at times get piqued by the injustices, <laughs> shall we say? And that's quite the understatement. And I mean, there, there are many things that come to mind as we bring this up right now. There's even this debate in what we would broadly call the spiritual community. Like, is it spiritual, in quotes, to be politically involved? Is it spiritual to point out injustice where you see it? These kinds of things. And while I firmly believe that it is, some of the things you're talking about in the realms of mindfulness practice, for example, have to do with what you do in that tiny interstitial moment between what causes the reaction and how you respond. And I do really like to recast it as not reacting, but thoughtfully responding. Responding from a place from taking a moment to digest what happened and recognizing, particularly in our interactions with other people, that there is a soul on the other side of this interaction. And that my first job is to respond from a place of love. Sometimes that place of love, I believe, does have something to do in pointing out people's actions if they're inauspicious, or if they're not in line with compassion, or if that's what your belief is. And I think, unfortunately nowadays, we see that kind of reasoned discourse going by the wayside, because again, there's so much reactivity, and so many of these things wind up being 
a matter of attacking a person instead of an idea or an action or a concept. And, you know, I am all about getting into battles of ideas and getting into the nitty gritty of things. And so was Consob, for example, about music, going to the very finest points of what microtones would be used on a note. He would get so passionate about it, <laughs> you know, just, and it's so beautiful to see that passion becoming engaged. But the moment we cross that threshold for when we fail to recognize our common humanity and the common element of the soul embodied in each and every one of us, then we're stepping outside of skillful action. And my music is one area that I use all the time to go back into that place and learn to listen. Because to me in life, as in music, the thing that often impresses me the most is how well does somebody listen and then give back something that is based upon that listening. Um, I have a meditation practice that I've been involved with for a number of years that has very much helped me too to not be as reactive. And finally, I'd say also, I have the blessing in my own life of having people with whom I dramatically disagree about political matters and many spiritual matters in my own family. Mm. I have a number of very, I would say, it's safe to say rigid evangelical Christians in my family. And part of the difficulty in for example, leading Kirtan, is that they believe in their system that I am leading people away from God, not towards God, as they understand it. And for me, for example, with my brother, uh, it's a huge challenge to recognize, for example, that, well, he voted for Trump. He fully believes in the idea that whatever might be wrong with Trump in terms of his character, it's a worthy trade-off to move forward a particular agenda. What I have to start with is I look in his eyes, I remember he's my brother, I remember how much I love him, and start from there. And sometimes we do have to recognize that there are going to be times when discourse may not be possible, and we skillfully avoid those areas. And other times, to try to, by example, to model love as much as possible, and to be as loving and accepting of them as possible, even if it can't be reciprocated. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. But I feel like I'd be given these lessons over and over again. <laughs> oh, boy. You didn't tell me that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, both of Heather's brothers are born-again evangelical Christians. Heather is Benji's brother. wife, just so you know. Yes, Heather's my wife. Um, one of them, the older of the two, is uh, part of a group that is ever more rare that I like to refer to as the Christian left. Uh, quite politically liberal, but very much convinced that the one way that we have to connect with God is through the intermediary of Jesus Christ. And the younger of the two brothers is much more politically conservative and perhaps even more rigid in that set of beliefs. And then my own brother, still more so. And then to keep things really interesting, my sister is an Orthodox Hasidic Jew. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that I have this microcosm in my family that allows me to navigate those differences. <laughs> <laughs> very lucky. You're very lucky. <laughs> lucky in some ways, yes. <laughs> well, you get this in front of you every moment. <laughs> you better find a meditation practice. <laughs> I'm so grateful for that, and also for the music. When I can sit oh, yeah, down right. play the music, and especially really when it comes down to chanting or playing raga that is entirely meant as an offering and as a practice, hmm. it helps me so much. Because I think, honestly, otherwise, I'd go completely crazy these days. 
I get you. I get you. By the way, uh, I mean, yeah, well, you very well know our tradition and chant is central to it. And, uh, uh, and in fact, in my own case, the big equalizer for me is what's known as the Hanuman Chalisa. Yeah, yeah. And 40 verses in praise of that monkey god. Talk about Hindu gods and gaudy goddesses. <laughs> There's a monkey. <laughs> and uh, we were told, you know, of course, when I first went to India, Neem Karoli Baba, the first thing, one of the first things he said, Christ, Hanuman, the same. Yeah. Energy of love and service and devotion, period, right? So we, we got, you know, we were immediately put on the uh, sub-ek, all one train. Sub-ek. Yeah. And uh, so when anybody says to me, Christ is the way I totally agree Christ is mm -hmm. the way the 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 word only uh, you know I have um I take a little umbrage with only uh, but uh, as far as uh, what you're saying about music and and for me doing the Chalisa is um, is the big equalizer no matter what is happening to me on any level and I thank God that uh, that uh, Maharaji gave us that uh, and by the way, folks yeah. out there, if you want to learn more about the Chalisa, go pick up Krishna Das. Um, go, uh, what's the name of that album? He did a bunch of different Chalisa. It's an instructional thing. Uh, Flow of Grace. Mm, go yeah. to Amazon, get that. Use our link, okay? Uh, and also, I have to mention, because I'm thinking about it, we're not mentioning, we, we just mentioned Benji's wife, Heather. And together, they have a wonderful group. That that I mean, Benji does a lot of different things, called Shantalas. S H A N T A L A. That'll also be up on the page on Mind Rolling, so you'll be able to access that as well. And uh, and by the way, I was fortunate, everybody, because we did it. Uh, we also uh, there's a Hanuman Monkey God Temple in Taos, New Mexico, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, we. Um, we did a benefit CD to uh, help get Hanuman in a new house. In other words, a real temple instead of the cow shed that he's in right now. <laughs> so that's happening. By the way, you can go to nkbashram.org. Anybody out there that's a lover of Hanuman wants to help there, go there. And you, There's a, a raffle, actually, for taking a trip to India. You can win a trip to India as part of the way we're trying to raise money there. This sounds like one commercial after another, huh? <laughs> I can't help it, folks. There's just, mm. uh, but the what I was going to say is, so we did the CD, and I have one Chalisa melody that I really love that I do all the mm. time, and just I was so lucky because it was recorded at our retreat in Maui that uh, that mm. Benj was at, and he played tablas, and oh. that was the thrill of my life. Okay, to have <laughs> you doing something like that. Uh, mm. Tabla. So you're doing the Esraj, you learn the Esraj. What are you doing Tabla along the way at the same time? I mean, each of these instruments, folks, it takes one person, you know, a hundred years to get right. Okay, so you got like 200 years going. How did that happen? Well, another one of my prayers, I have to admit, each time I sit down to play the Tabla, the Esraj, or to sing, is that I will be guided by the spirit of that instrument about what to play. And I, I was floored when I realized the level of dedication of the masters that I came into the sphere of 
during those years. I mean, Zakir Hussein, unbelievable prodigy and genius. I mean, by the time he was 12 years old, he was playing with the top artists on All India Radio on what is arguably one of the most difficult percussion instruments yeah. in existence. And can I just say, if people who don't believe in miracles, right, lots of people go, nah, you know, this is bullshit. Your mind was, you know, you were on acid or something. <laughs> go see Zakir Hussein completely straight. Don't even smoke a joint. Okay? He is a miracle. I mean, watching, you cannot believe what he does. I mean, still today, right? I haven't seen him in years, but I'm sure it's still today. The degree to which he is tuned into music is nothing short of miraculous. I can't think of any other way to describe it. Um, there's a style of playing in Indian classical music called sangat. And what it literally means, a gut is a kind of a fixed composition that you will play and sung is together. But what the endeavor is, is to improvise the same thing at the same time. <laughs> and... I have seen Zakirji play with artists where I don't care how much somebody rehearsed, you could not be tighter than what they were doing completely extemporaneously. No rehearsal, no nothing. It's just going straight into that flow. Uh, and an awareness of music at a level that seems in any sense superhuman. Uh, I remember there's a band I was a part of, started way back in 1978, called Ancient Future. We did uh, world fusion music and we put out uh, a few albums while I was in the band. And then I, a kind of crazy left turn in my life is I left the band in 1986 to write, start writing music for a soap opera on NBC. But that was <laughs> a, <laughs> a crazy thing. Right after I left the band, though, the violinist in the band wrote this uh, really cool tune called Lakshmi Rocks Me. And <laughs> they decided to hire Zakirji to play, to bring him into the studio to play on that tune. So on the way in from Marin County to San Francisco for that session, they played a cassette of the track so that Zakir could hear it before he got into the studio. He gets into the studio. The violinist says, oh, Zakir, I'm so glad you could play here. And he says, you have to really be careful because you have to remember at bar 34, the meter changes to 7-8. This is the guy who wrote the tune. Zakir said, no, it's in the 36th bar. They reviewed it. Zakir was right. He'd heard it once, one time. Oh, and here's the guy who wrote the tune, who just happened <laughs> to make a mistake. He caught it. And this kind of thing happens all the time. Mm. <laughs> and the same kinds of things with Ali Akbar Khan, the ability to go right into the very heart of what the music calls for in that second at an uncanny level. You just cannot believe what was just played. It was like... A long time, we could call it a course in musical miracles, if you yeah, will. Really. Just yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, now, once we did a session, Benj and I, with uh, another wonderful young musician named Trevor Hall, Rampriya Das is his Hindu name, and it was a session around mother and the primal mother, the the goddess, the whatever terminology you know that the feminine force that is the makeup of all of what appears in form in this mm. in this world. And uh, it was a wonderful discussion. And I was thinking uh, about when you walked in to Khan Sab's, Ali Akbar Khan's temple, uh, which was devoted to Saraswati, the goddess of music and learning. Happens to be my wife's name, by the way, everybody. <laughs> you all know that because I'm always bringing her up and she's been on the podcast. 
and um, and and just got to me it, you got what I would say it sounds like a complete diksha or initiation in that moment, yeah. right? I mean, you didn't, didn't I haven't heard that story before, so it's a yeah. powerful thing. Can you talk about what that means to you regarding your connection to that? to the great goddess. Wow. Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the things that comes to me is this idea of continuing to pay things forward in one sense. The fact that I was able to even be in the sphere of masters of this level is such a huge gift to me. And to my mind, it makes it incumbent on me to try since Ali Akbar Khan has passed, for example, to keep alive in what I can offer to the best of my ability, the blessings that he showered on me musically, to try to take all those things that he would teach me as thick-headed as I felt so often about how to serve the music and to bring the music into the world with a complete focus on its sacred nature. And Saraswati, of course, absolutely embodies that. There is, I think, in our culture all too often, this kind of product mentality around music. You know, it's this thing that you buy, sell, whatever, that it's the, the backdrop while you're shopping for clothes or for groceries or this way that it kind of unconsciously sometimes is foisted upon us, which I also know. Kansa, I've had a great deal of difficulty with that whole idea. Why is music being put into these not only secular places, but where it's very clearly being put in a role where it's supposed to be largely ignored. <laughs> it's a backdrop for a conversation at dinner or whatever. You know, I have to admit I have real problems with this. Maybe one of Saraswati's gifts to me. The most dangerous place to take me if you want to have a conversation is an Indian restaurant where they're playing really good classical music mm. because I will not be able to track the conversation at all. <laughs> My mind immediately goes there, and I think that's one of the gifts of the guru and the gifts that somehow... Saraswati keeps bestowing. When we think about what can happen with the power of music, how utterly miraculous it is, and the kind of expression it becomes of almost any possible experience or phenomenon. This is the way they saw the raga. It was reflecting natural elements, times of day or season, and was distilling them into this musical essence. And I think that one of the great gifts of that moment with Saraswati is that remains my intention. What is this music really about? What is it that I might be able to allow to come through me? And this is the other thing. So often in our culture, we tend to identify with this ego as being the source of things. You know, you look at even something as simple as the phenomenon of the rock star. A lot of it is about this person being this thing as opposed to what is coming through through that person. It's one of the things I so love about Rama Priyadas, by the way. I love how he just allows the stuff to come so exquisitely. Trevor Hall. In his, yeah, Trevor Hall. In his singing, in his playing, he embodies the music 100%. He goes into that zone. I think that's one of the greatest blessings that Saraswati can give us. Mm. And, and then take that, that particular blessing. What are the ways in which not just you, but we can have that support our day-to-day lives, rather, not just our lives when we're in that moment, when we're connecting through music, but 
it it just how does it roll over into our more mundane uh, moments in terms of I guess spaciousness and breath and um, a willingness to be more open. I mean, those are the things that come to my mind. But in your case, well, as I mentioned before, you know, I'm I'm the product product of a couple of academics and a certain kind of, I would say, even intellectual Jewish culture. And so my albatross from all that has been getting stuck in my head, trying to put concepts around everything, trying to put words around everything. And to me, that's one of the most exquisite things about music is it takes me out of that and into direct experience. Yeah. Rather than substituting a word or a concept for something, there's an invitation in each note of the music to go right into the heart of the experience itself the phenomenon itself, not the idea of it, not the word of it. Mm. When you couple that with the power of mantra like we're doing in chant, it's unbelievable. Because to me, it feels like it facilitates this pathway that it's so elusive for, I think, most of us most of the time, this disconnect between mind and heart. So often when we see people in the world, our heart is inviting us into immediate connection, but our mind starts playing these games of what if and... I don't know about this, that, or other things, and doubts, and all these things. And not that we shouldn't be discerning, but nevertheless, I feel like music gives us a direct pathway in, both as a listener and as a player. Uh, if you even look at the word raga, it's actually related to a Sanskrit word meaning color. And in this uh, second century before the Common Era text, the Natya Shastra, literally it's a sacred text of, of dance, it describes the raga as that which colors the mind and heart. Hmm. And it does so directly without the need for any other kind of intermediary, you know, words, concepts, cultural underpinnings, all of those things, it goes straight into the heart. And that's one of the things that I think is the timeless gift of music as a player, as a listener, as an aficionado. In Indian uh, thought, there's a word for somebody who maybe doesn't necessarily play, but just really loves great music. That word is rasika. Rasika. Oh. Rasika. And, you know, that ika ending in a lot of Sanskrit words, you know, somebody who is drawn to a particular thing. And rasa mm. is often translated, of course, as juice or essence, mm. the very essence of these things. And all of these great moods, these essences come together in Indian thought with a very specific expression in the raga. Each raga embodies them to a certain sense. And it's almost like a science of how you put all of these elements together to fully embody that mood, that time of day, that season, without having to put all of these other ideas, words, concepts in the way. It's a direct experience through the music. Mm. And I would say to everybody that... Uh... Certainly, and and I've talked about my experience, my experience, by the way, which I didn't mention before, was with John Coltrane, uh, seeing him live and hearing my favorite things and, and having an out-of-body experience in the moment. Uh, and and certainly that can happen, and, mo and it's most efficacious, I find, and not everybody is tuned, uh, especially if you're from the West, because of the the vast difference in structure of Indian music versus Western music. And not everybody is tuned that way. But if you have o enough openness and you can 
uh, sit. I mean, just the uh, meditation in the night that we played earlier in the podcast. If you sit with that, just for the f- you know the several minutes that we we played it, and you focus, and you're open, mm. that absolutely will tune you in and do exactly what you're talking about, Benji. Which is mm. in the day to day practicality of one's life, having having that. Uh, push into the core of your being and and identifying there for those few moments rather yes. than with my you know your mind emotions ego and all that um that's a big deal and that that's why i, I have always uh, and music has that powerful mm. capability but i'll say also that's listening and, and that's what you just what was that term rasikia rasikia rasika yeah rasika yeah but uh, because this is so much part of our tradition, we I have to suggest to everybody that they they go to their nearby yoga center and where there's always some kind of chant thing going on, mm. and start to see about that as a practice that you can take home with you, mm. and because uh, it is a powerful practice, and uh, it can be as simple as as the most Sri Ram J Ram J J Ram period it can be uh what you were talking about um being close to the uh what was the uh the the still small place inside us the quakers the quake that's a quaker thing right it can be just repeating that i mean they there's certain uh, phrases that the quakers use to to also they're they're pretty much like a chant to send you Mm -hmm. inside yourself uh, whatever it may be, um, we certainly uh, use you know Hindu chant. Uh, it's thousands of years old that they've these vibrations of these particular mantras certainly have an effect that we you know we don't need to know the, the science of them. Although Ben, you probably would probably know a lot about the science of them uh, to to uh, to use them as a way. And I'm going back to the middle part of our conversation about our reactivity and what are the things that we can do to cut them down. This is certainly a major, major one of them. And uh, so we're at the end of our little chat. We could go on, huh? <laughs> but you know, well, before it ends, I'm gonna. I want to. I want to go out with one of your songs. Guess what it's going to be. Saraswati. 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 And this, I'm going to dedicate this to my my lovely and wonderful wife, who uh, emblemizes the name uh, K. K. Shah, a good friend of ours from India, that's actually traveling around uh, the states right now, sharing who he is. He's Ram. He's the he's the first interpreter for Ramdas with Neem Karoli Baba all the way back in the late '60s. And uh, when he heard her name, he said, and and he spent some time with her, he said, he gave a a Hindu shloka, which basically says, she who has the name shall become the name. Wow. And so uh, this is dedicated to you, Saraswati. And and everybody out there, you, you can find so much of what we've been talking about from Benji's records to Kansab, uh, to Zakir Hussein, to God knows. Whatever we talked about, it's going to be in the show notes and it's going to be high lit and it's going to be linked. And so you'll be able to access all of this stuff. And 
Benja, really, really thank you. Uh, and I think BenjiWertheimer.com, right? If people want to go directly access you. Um, actually, Benji Music is the best ben, way Benji, to go. Okay, Benji, Benji Music. With, Benji with a Y, yeah, yeah B-E-N-J-Y, B- music. Okay, good. Uh, so thank you again for being here. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Mind Rolling. Go to the Be Here Now Network, BeHereNowNetwork.com. And do whatever it is you can to help support what we're doing with all these wonderful teachers that are on the network, as uh, as well as, you know, we love to hear from you. Benj, let's do this again. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. Really appreciate it, Raghu. Bye-bye.
Thank you.